I'll confess, sometimes I let my podcast playlist get out of hand and I get way behind. But there's one show that I subscribe to and any new episode goes right to the top of the queue. That's the Jordan Harbinger show. That's because I never have to figure out, okay, is this one going to be interesting or do I wait for the next one like I do for some shows? Because Jordan's conversations are always a must listen for me. He talks to fascinating people from any category you can think of. Authors, scientists, athletes, you name it. He's talked to undercover cops who posed as mafia and the actual career mafia hitmen. And the stories he gets out of these people, just incredible. In one episode, he talked to Paul Holes. You might know that name if you're into true crime. He's the former investigator who uses really advanced methods to solve cold cases, including the Golden State Killer. And another one I really enjoyed was with Sam Harris, an author and neuroscientist who promotes skepticism, and he doesn't mind taking on some seriously controversial topics like politics or religion. That one's going to make you think. Whenever a new episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show pops up, I already know it's going to be an episode that I'll enjoy listening to, and I'll bet you will too. For some episode recommendations, check out jordanharbinger.com start. Or search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R. On Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Imagine unlocking a version of yourself that's unstoppable, where mental barriers no longer hold you back. Listen to Mentally Stronger with me, Amy Morin, therapist and international best-selling author, here to guide you on a journey to reaching your greatest potential, Every Monday, I bring you into conversations with some of the most fascinating minds. Experts, authors, entrepreneurs, athletes, and musicians. They don't just share stories. They reveal the mental strategies that propelled them to the top. But here's the real magic. At the end of each episode, I break down their wisdom into practical therapist-approved advice. In my solo episodes, I dive deep into the techniques that build mental strength. It's like having your own personal therapy session as you discover how to turn these insights into steps you can take right now. This podcast isn't just for those facing mental health challenges. It's for anyone who wants to push their limits, achieve peak performance, and truly thrive. Are you ready to unlock your full potential? Then it's time to become mentally stronger. Subscribe to Mentally Stronger with therapist Amy Morin, available wherever you love to listen to podcasts. Hey, my name's Otis Gray, host of The Daily Book Club, a daily podcast where I read wonderful old books one chapter at a time. Simple as that. Whether you want to get engaged and lost in a fascinating story that has stood the test of time, or just relax to a good book, listen to The Daily Book Club to get wrapped up or unwind during your day. We'll read classic stories like Pride and Prejudice, The Enchanted April, The Wind in the Willows, beautiful stories all told from start to finish. And you can even do a real book club. Tune into the Daily Book Club Discord and discuss the readings with other book club listeners. However you want to listen, it's your choice. Subscribe to the Daily Book Club on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and everywhere else. New episodes every single day. So sit back, relax, and get lost in the Daily Book Club. What Was That Like? contains adult language and content and is not intended for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. I freaked out because I didn't know what to do. I didn't even have a phone. Welcome to What Was That Like? I'm your host, Scott Johnson. This is a show where we talk to regular people, people just like you or just like me, who have found themselves in an extremely unusual situation. We'll hear their stories and get inside their head because we all want to know, what was that like? More information about each episode at whatwasthatlike.com. Here we go. Do you remember when you were young? and you're going through your teenage years, didn't time seem to go by a lot more slowly back then? All those years waiting and looking forward to that one big day when you're finally out on your own. Now that was something to be excited about, right? You'd have your own car, your own place. 
You could come and go whenever. You could stay up as late as you want. It'd be like heaven on earth. Of course, now that we're past that stage in life, we know that being out on your own and responsible for yourself is not always the paradise and freedom that we might have anticipated. My guest today, Terry, was right at that breakthrough stage, leaving home for the first time, being on her own, even moving hundreds of miles away. It was all very exciting. But then, as soon as she moved into her new place, the very first day she was there, actually, she found out that the real world can bring with it some unexpected and horrific things. It was a day she'll never forget, and she told me all about it. Hang around after the conversation, and I'll tell you about another podcast I recently discovered. And if you enjoy What Was That Like?, please consider becoming a supporter. That not only tells me you love the podcast, it also means you get access to all the other bonus episodes that are only available to patrons. There are different levels of support, and all the details are at whatwasthatlike.com slash support. And now, here's Terry. What was your age when this happened? 20. I was 20 years old. 20 years old. That's pretty young for something this, this crazy. I guess I crazy is one word. It's not, not, uh, not the only word to describe it, I suppose. Can you talk about what was your, where were you at in life when this happened? You just graduated high school, right? Correct. So I graduated high school. I, I grew up in, well, I didn't totally grow up in a small town. I, my dad was um, in the Air Force. So we lived in a couple um, large cities um, in Arizona and Florida. And then when he retired from the service, we moved back to his hometown, which is uh, Henniker, New Hampshire, small little town, about maybe 1,500 people. I graduated with a class of 22 kids. I mean, that tells you you know, how small it was. And we had kind of a crazy household. My parents had six kids in seven years and four months time. Between 19, February 1958 and the twins were born in June of 65. So I was kind of, I'm the middle, my brother and I were in the middle. So I was sort of lost. I didn't have a lot of direction after high school. I did well in school, but I just didn't have the guidance from family or support that like to co- sort of keep moving. Um, I think it was just so many kids, my parents work full time. And so I, I just was sort of searching for myself and I, I just wanted to get out of the little town that I lived in. It sounds when you described the little town, it, I kind of picture a Norman Rockwell painting. Sort of. It sort of is. Actually, wasn't he from New Hampshire? I'm not sure. Massachusetts, Massachusetts. I think it was, um, yeah, it was a town in Western Mass, I believe. So you got out of New Hampshire. What did you do? So I just decided, oh, I'm going to gain my independence. I'm just going to take off and leave. And and everyone was like, you're crazy. You can't just do that. You don't have a job. Where are you going to go and stuff? And I said, well, I have a brother that lives outside of New Orleans. He lives in Slidell. I can go down there and I can just start my whole new life, you know, just, I'm 20 years old. I'm like king of the world, you know, that kind of a deal. Like, Oh, nothing. When you're that young, I guess nothing really bothers you or, or you don't really think about it. So I decided to go and I hopped in my car and I drove by myself down. Um, I even stopped at the world's fair on the way in Tennessee, which was hilarious that I did that. And then I got to my brothers and I didn't, I didn't have any job or anything. So I stayed there for a few weeks until I found a job in New Orleans. So that was the first step. So I found a job at a hot dog factory, which all things. Um, A hot dog factory? A hot dog factory. And before you say it, it was the cleanest place I've ever worked in my life. It was ridiculously clean. Uh, I worked in the lab there. I got a job. I don't know how I got it, but I got a job in this hot dog factory in the lab. So then I had to move to New Orleans. I had to find an apartment and move there. So I'd be closer because my brother lived about an hour away from the city. So that's where it all began. So you found an apartment. What was this place like? It was off of Magazine Street. It was called Phillips Street. It was in a decent neighborhood. It wasn't anything alarming. I didn't think, you know, I mean, not that I was well versed on the city at that time, but it seemed like a nice apartment. It was sort of 
kind of like different houses close together. I want, I don't know if they were exactly would be called row houses or shotgun houses, but they were houses close together. And, um, the, the apartment itself was you, you had, you parked on the street and then you walked up a couple of steps and you had, there was like a outside area, like a porch and I guess, but I wasn't really, I didn't really hang out on the porch. The apartment was like one big room that had a kitchenette and then behind that had a bathroom and then where you slept was a loft. So it was basically one huge, you know, big room. Mm -hmm. Like what you'd call a studio apartment probably. Yeah, studio, yeah. So this wasn't a, this wasn't like a big apartment building. This was more like a house. It was, yes. It was a, it was a house. And how close, like when you say, when you talk about that front porch, how far was that from the street? Probably about eight feet or something like that. I mean, it was pretty, pretty close to the sidewalk or whatever, or to the sidewalk rather. So you were right there. Right there. Okay. Right, yeah, exactly. Right there. Can you just tell us what happened that day that you moved in? Just take us through uh, what happened. Sure. So it was a an August day. It was super hot. I, I just remember that. It was super hot. And I had basically everything I owned fit into like my car, so to speak. So it wasn't difficult to unpack everything. So I, I got there. It was probably about mid-afternoon. And I brought everything in. I parked my car. I brought everything in and unloaded everything. And kind of, you know, once everything was done, I decided I would just sit down for a minute and take a break. Before I did that, I had, I made sure that the, the front door was open so that the screen door would allow air to come in because it was, you know, so hot, it's stifling. If you've ever been to New Orleans, you know, it's just, it's really humid. And so I decided to sit down and, and now I'd only been there for maybe two hours max. And as I sat down, I, you know, was looking out the front door where the screen was and I saw an older gentleman walking by, just walking by. So I, you know, just noticed that and everything, not a big deal. I'm still sitting there. This is before we had cell phones to like scroll through or anything, you know, I don't even think I had a book back then. So just sitting there, probably drinking a glass of water. And then I heard a noise and, you know, I'm looking straight out and I, and I hear a noise and I see this guy running really fast. And uh, I'm like, wow, that's really weird. You know, right. You know, just, just like running, bolting. So I, and, I was, and the guy running was not the old man that you just no, saw. No. And that's why I thought it was weird. Cause I see this old man walking and then maybe about 20 seconds later, this guy was running full speed. So I, I was sitting next to a window. So picture I'm sitting in a chair and it's next to a window and I pull the curtain back and I look out the window to the side and I see this man being hit, you know, being assaulted. So my first instinct was, you know, I jumped up, I jumped up and I ran out the front door. And as I did, I saw the person that was running, the younger person, grabbing the guy's watch and running away. So all I saw from him was like a side profile. And then I saw him running away off in the distance very fast. And the guy was laying down there, blood. I mean, it was just he was on the sidewalk, just, you know, he was moaning at the time. And this is the man you saw carrying the bag. Exactly. The older man. So I freaked out because I didn't know what to do. I didn't even have a phone. I didn't even have a phone hooked up yet. I couldn't even call the police. I, so I ran over to him and then he's still moaning. So I started to run to all the doors, like all the, um, the neighbors. And I'm banging on their doors and no one is answering. By now, it's because I moved in, it was like, say, two. So it's like four, it's like maybe five o'clock or something like that in the afternoon. 
So finally, I, I bang on a door and well, as I'm banging on the door, I look inside and this family was sitting down to dinner. Like, so they were at the table and I just started crying. I'm screaming. I'm like, there's a guy hurt. Call somebody, call the police. And they immediately jumped up and called the police and I'm assuming the ambulance. And I just ran back over to the gentleman who was still moaning. And I didn't really like know what to do. I, do I move him? Do I, what do I do? I mean, I was, it was just something I'd never seen before. I mean, it was crazy. Um, was he conscious or? No, I don't think he was really conscious. I don't think he was conscious. Though he was moaning, I don't think he was aware of his surroundings at all. He was pretty out of it. So then maybe three minutes later, the police arrived. And that's where it, it was just really sad. So the police officer knelt down beside him and he reached his hand under his head and he said, you know, there's a baseball sized lump on the back of his head. And he then looks over and he goes, this guy was hit with this and it was, it was a baseball bat with like nails sticking out of it. And I just, I was like, oh my God, like I couldn't even believe it. I couldn't believe that, that this was all happening to me. I'd just been there for two hours. I mean, it was just crazy. And before this, you had not even seen the bat. No, I did not. I didn't even notice the bat. Like I was just focused on him and I didn't. And, and the guy, and when the police said, look at these are like three inch nails sticking at it, you know, I was just really focused on him and just, I think I was in somewhat like shock. I don't know. I mean, just from where I came from, I'd never seen anything like this either. That's, so. what, I'm, what, I'm, that's what I'm thinking. A small town girl coming to the big city in the first day and you see something like this, like, it's like, Wow, is this what life is like here? That's what did I get myself into? You know, it was just surreal. That's all I can say. And then it got worse. The next thing that happened was sort of simultaneously, an ambulance showed up, but also an older woman came walking up. And then, about maybe about thirty feet from where he was laying, she just let out a scream that that's my husband. That's my husband. And I, uh, like that was awful. Just, you know, she, I guess she had walked behind him. She had, I don't know if she had a few more errands to run, but he was ahead of her by probably five, six minutes. I mean, and that was just super sad. And, you know, she just didn't know what to do. She's, you know, this is my husband, this is my husband. So that was really hard to take right then. Did you talk to her at all? She actually handed me, uh, she handed me her groceries. She handed me her groceries and it had like just some like beer and some other items. And she said, take these, just take these. I don't know why, but obviously, you know, <laughs> okay. So I just took him and I set him down and then she was with him and stayed with him and you know when the ambulance came she stayed with him and went with him to the hospital or went with the police to the hospital one or the other but she didn't stay around obviously something i've been recently making a deliberate effort with is to read more there are lots of books i want to read and i try to read every day even if it's just a few pages a little bit each day adds up and it can make a big difference it's like taking care of your gut. Even though it's not big, it supports the health of your whole body. Seeds DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic benefits not just your gut and your heart, which aren't outwardly visible, but your skin too, which you can see. Every morning it's the same thing. Two capsules of Seed DSO-1. And sometimes I wonder, is it normal to feel this great? It helps support digestive health with optimal gut bacteria levels. And thankfully, that's all backed up by science, and all the supporting data is on their website. If you're trying to avoid sugar, soy, peanuts, or gluten, you're good to go. And I was reading the literature, and I thought, you had me at vegan. 
because it's that too. And if you have kids, DSO-1 is the first multi-strain symbiotic shown to be tolerable and health-promoting in a cohort of children aged 3 to 17. And you can use this promo code to give it a try. Trust your gut with Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic. Go to seed.com what and use code 25what to get 25% off your first month. That's 25% off your first month of Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic at seed.com slash what, code 25what. I don't know how many other people do this, but I like to plan my weekly meals. Maybe I'm just weird, but I like quick and easy. That's just one of the benefits you can get with Cook Unity. Go to cookunity.com slash what or enter code what before checkout to get 50% off your first week. One of the dishes I recently had was the Green Goddess Falafel Bowl. Oh, I loved it. The falafel was seasoned perfectly, and I love how crispy it is on the outside, but really moist on the inside. It's a signature dish of Enat Admoni. She's known around the world as a chef. You've probably seen her on TV, and her dishes are made right here in Florida, so I'm supporting local business, and I love that. And the convenience of Cook Unity is crazy. I mean, I've got podcast episodes to produce. I don't have time for cooking. These meals are delivered fully cooked. So when it's time to eat, I pick a meal based on my mood for that day. I heat it for a few minutes and enjoy. The menus are updated every week, so there's always something new to try. You can choose from over 350 meals based on your dietary needs or taste preferences, or go wild and have Cook Unity pick for you, because every meal is just amazing. Make the best meal plan ever with the convenience, chef-level quality, and endless variety of Cook Unity. Go to cookunity.com slash what or enter code what before checkout for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using code what or going to cookunity.com slash what. Was she a neighbor there near you or do you know how far she lived? Apparently, yeah, she lived on that street. So she lived just down the street. She was walking, they were walking home from like the local store probably a mom and pop store. They were just walking home. So just like an average day, it was just, you know, like five o'clock in the afternoon, broad daylight. I mean. When did you find out that he did not survive? After this all happened, I sat on the steps to my place. And by now, now all the neighbors were coming out and they're all you know, walking around and talking and everything. And so as I'm sitting there, a car, like a, just an unmarked car, like a sedan pulls up and just parks right in the street. And these two gentlemen get out and they were dressed in suits and they walked right over to the stoop. And I, you know, looked at me I'm assuming maybe they thought that I would be the person no just because everyone was sort of directing all their questions towards me all the neighbors and everything I don't know but they asked um who was here who saw the crime and everyone's pointing you know <laughs> she did <laughs> so so you were likely the only witness I was the only witness. I was basically the sole witness. No one saw it because, I mean, afterwards I'm screaming, running on the door, you know, running around trying to get help. And no one was even, you know, no one was responding or, or around. So I definitely was the only witness to it. So they put me in their car. They're like, we're the homicide detectives. This guy just died. And I was like, is, you know, is this real? Like, Wow. I didn't even know what to think. There I'm like this 20 year old sitting in the back of the car on my first day describing what happened when a guy got murdered on my doorstep or on the, on the sidewalk in front of my place. I mean, it was just, they asked me a lot of questions and I answered them to the best of my knowledge. The thing was, I couldn't really describe him. I could describe, but he was like average height um, average weight. I could describe exactly what he was wearing. And to this day, I can see him running away. It was navy blue shorts with a white sleeveless t-shirt, um, almost like an undershirt and just darting away. But I didn't really, I mean, he ran so fast. It wasn't like I got a really good look at him. 
so I let them know that, you know, I can't like definitively identify this, this person because I saw him so fast and I mostly, except for a little side when he was grabbing the watch, mostly I just saw him leaving. So it was like, you know, taken off. Well, when you, when you were seeing this happening, it's not like you were trying to think, okay, I need to see what he looks like. Your, your brain was still processing what was even going on. Right. Like is, did the guy fall or did the guy, you know, I didn't really know at the time, even what was going on when I saw him pulling the watch off, that's when I knew that it was, it was really bad. And, um, I found out afterwards from the wife that he only, or I guess, I don't know if she said it. She must've said it then somehow. Yeah. She must've said it when she dropped off the grocery, but he only had $2 on him. Now, I thought to myself, he got he got killed for two dollars, and then I thought to myself, well, what amount of money do you really need to get killed for? I mean, is there is there like a, but yeah, it two dollars in a wallet. I mean, it just, yeah, it was just. So how so you you were able to tell the detectives what you saw, which was unfortunately probably didn't give them a lot to go on. Right, right. It didn't give them a lot to go on. Um, unfortunately, I didn't, you know, but I wasn't, you know, I had to. That was exactly what I saw. So, you know, they took down all that information and then they handed me their card and they said, if you think of anything else, call us, but don't, no matter what you do, don't talk to the press. And I said, yeah, that's fine. Absolutely. I, you know, I'm not going to talk to the press about this, you know? So I didn't. So I went back up onto this, you know, the stoop and people were still, you know, hanging out and, and talking. And yeah, this is, it seems like the kind of thing that after, after it's all done, that the people that live around you, I mean, you, this, this is a weird way to meet your new neighbors, I guess, but it's something that everyone needs to talk about because it's so big. Right. I think that they felt like, like their area had really been invaded and, they needed to sort of sort it out um, with the, their own selves and, you know, what exactly happened. I mean, it could have been any of them that just witnessed that. So I think for them, it was really quite shocking as well, especially just, I, you know, just the, the time of the day, just being like dinner time kind of a deal. So we were there for quite a while because then more people are coming home from work and they're doing so, you know, so there's more people like gathering and it was, it stayed late at that time. Like it, you know, it was summer, August. So it, it stays late. The sun didn't set until later. Right. So it wasn't like, you know, there was nighttime and everyone was going to go in. And so, yeah, so we kept talking and um, then a, a news truck pulls up actually. And, the person that was in the passenger seat of the news van or whatever, they said, does anybody, what happened here? And I didn't say anything. <laughs> nobody, nobody said, they, they said, uh, do, who does anybody, you know, do you have, does anyone have to say anything? And I just said, no comment. I don't know if somebody like said like, she's the one, you know, cause there's a lot of people around. She's the one. And I just, when they looked at me, I just said, I have no comment. I don't. Cause I just remembered what the detective said. He said, don't say anything to the press. And I was going to do what he said. I was 20 years old, but I'm, I'm going to do what they say. I was already scared. I wasn't going to you know. Yeah. So I didn't do anything. So they got, they got nothing out of you. So they somehow they pieced together yeah. what had happened, but yeah. I don't know how because I didn't talk to them, but they may have just because there was people that were, were lingering around that maybe somebody said something to them. Cause we were all talking about what did happen. So they were aware of that. The person got mugged and that the person died and they knew a few of the details just because I was just talking about it, but just to them, just to the neighbors, not to the press. I guess what anybody would do if they were in that situation, just everybody gather around talking about it. Sure. You have to talk it out. Absolutely. Right. 
I know on times when I have had something like this, not exactly like this, but something that, that causes an adrenaline surge, I've had trouble getting to sleep that night. How did you sleep? Awful. I slept so bad. I just, I tried to sleep every time the AC would come on. I just bolted up. And I, I just, I mean, my, and my door was, I think my door is not just locked. I think I put the chair in front of the door. I mean, I was just, it was just freaked me out. So yeah, I did not sleep well at all that night. I just couldn't wait for daylight to come back up. But, you know, again, then that brought on a whole new set of issues or. Right. So, so what happened the next morning? So the next morning I got up and I thought to myself, I just want to see what happened here. You know, like, was this a big deal? Does this happen off and everything? I went and grabbed a newspaper. I walked up to the store, the local store and I grabbed a newspaper and I walked back and I sat there and I opened it up and I read about what had happened. And when it got to the part where they gave out my address, and basically, uh, I don't know, um, inferred that I was able to identify the assailant. I was now I'm really upset. I literally, I couldn't believe it. You know, they had my address in there, and then they, it was just, just sort of inferring that I knew who who had done this, and or could describe who had done this. That's incredible. You know, I, ah, yeah, it was. And when something like that happens today, they even the scene of the, the address of the crime, even if there's no witnesses, they don't put the actual address of the house. It's like the, you know, the 1400 block of Magazine Street, you know, something like that. But of course, back, back then, I guess, personal identity and personal information, they, you know, it wasn't at the forefront of everybody's mind like it is today. So, uh. So there you saw in the newspaper your address identifying you as the person who could identify the killer. Yeah, and and, and they even put the, the person that died's address on there. And I also thought that was a little bit strange. But anyway, so yeah, so I felt like now I'm in a real bind. And maybe 10 minutes after I opened up the newspaper and read that, all along comes my landlord. So I'd only been there for one day. So he comes back and he he, he just smile as can be he goes so how was your first day and I just burst out crying I just burst out crying and said oh my gosh you don't know what happened he goes what I showed him the newspaper I said this happened on my first day somebody got killed right here on the sidewalk right in front of our place and I saw it and he was just whoa, no way, you know, that, you know, and I said, look, I just looked at him. I said, I'm leaving. I, I have to leave. You know, I had no place to go, but I was like, I'll pack up my car. You know, I have to leave. I can't stay here. They gave out my address. He, I mean, he was, he was understanding to a point. <laughs> he didn't even give me back my security deposit. <laughs> I'm there for one day. I, you know, this happens and he takes the entire security deposit from me. And I just, I don't know. I just thought that like in the end to me, that's kind of a rough twist on top of everything. So at that point, I I wasn't really sure what I was going to do, but I knew I was going to leave. First, I called my brother um, who lived in Seidel and I said, look, this is what happened. And his first words were, do you think it might be time for you to go back home now? <laughs> back home, meaning back north. In New Hampshire. Right? And I remember thinking, I didn't want to give up. I didn't want to be a failure. I already felt like I was a failure when I left high school and I didn't go to college and, and everything. And I just felt like if I went back right now, it'd be... I'd be just a failure again. So I just, I said, no, I I can't. Well, you had to figure going from a little town to the big city, there's going to be trials and obstacles to overcome and and 
stuff like that. But boy, this has got to be more of a test than you ever expected. Exactly. And it, yeah, what a test, right? So then he said, well, my cousin was going to go to Tulane Law School. So he he said, maybe you can room with her because she had driven down with her boyfriend. Her, I think it, he could have been her fiance at the time. I'm not quite sure, but they're married now. So I got a hold of her and we decided we would get a place together and we would move in. So I did, I, I couldn't believe there was an out, but I was able to stay. And just for the ironic twist that she actually happened to be going to law school in Tulane. So we ended up getting a place together, a really small place, but we thought what we thought was in a decent neighborhood, it's, you know, it's St. Charles Avenue. So it's, you know, so that's how you got out of there. So that's how I got out of there. I packed up all my stuff again. It only took me a little bit because I didn't have very much stuff. So put everything into the car, met up with her. We looked for a place and then we moved in. And, and that was an interesting place as well. Was the attacker ever caught or do you know? I had never found that information out. Um, I tried to research that recently, but uh, no, I don't believe so. Um, and another thing is, I always thought of this as like an old man, but I realized he was only 56 years old. This is a man who was married with 10 grandchildren at 56 years old. I guess when you're 20, everybody seems to be a lot older than you are. But I mean, I'm 58 right now and I'm thinking, wow, he was younger. Yeah, that's than not me. old. Yeah, he was younger than me when he was killed for no reason, like just killed. It makes you... I, it's very sad. Yeah. Yeah. You th it gives you stuff to think about, about, you know, the big picture. Right. So you moved out, but then you had a couple other things happen in that New Orleans area right. that were also uh, not all that uh, pleasant. What was, what was that? The next thing that happened was, well, it, I mean, it, it went pretty well for a while. I had a job. I liked my job. I did pretty well at it and I learned a lot. And I worked with some really cool people, but then it came to be, it was Mardi Gras, which I thought, this is great. I live right on St. Charles Ave. I've got parades every day coming by our house. And I thought, that's great. Yeah. So it really was quite, quite fun um, to be there during Mardi Gras. And I mean, it's just, if you've never done it, it's just something that you'll never forget. I mean, it's just crazy. It's fun. It's exciting. It's super pretty and all the costumes and everything. So so we had gone through about maybe 10 days of parades. And it was about, it was the night before that Tuesday. And my cousin and my cousin's um, boyfriend slash fiance had come down from New Hampshire. And we all, ourselves and maybe about three or four other people, were going to head down to downtown. So... We started to, I guess we probably took the trolley to get there, but we were all, we were just walking around and we were walking down Canal Street and we hadn't turned yet to go to where the main festivities were, but we were walking down Canal Street and um, I got ahead of them. Somehow I got ahead of them by maybe about 50 feet or something, maybe even a little bit more. I don't know. I guess I was just like anxious. I was just kind of doing my own thing. I was also a fast walker and maybe they were, they were sort of, I was the only person, they had a group of people and they were all couples. So I just sort of walked ahead of them. And when I went to cross one of the crosswalks, I was groped by a group of people. Like they were groping everybody that was walking through. And I just kept walking through, you know, and you know, I was just groped, whatever. And so these other people, but all of a sudden the police started running after the people who were doing this. And so the people, the, there was maybe about a gang of like, I want to say like six to eight people that were doing this. They were just groping everybody that's walking across. Cause you're kind of, it's, you're squeezed in so tight that you're kind of helpless. Like if you did that, like they could get away with it because where are you going to turn? There's, you can't do anything but still walk across the street. 
so they started running and instead, so they were knocking people out of the way, but instead of completely like just pushing me out of the way, cause they were running from the police. This one guy takes huge guy takes his hand and puts it behind my neck and punches me right in the side of the head and just knocks me right to the ground. And I mean, it was just, it was crazy. It was like, but then, but I wasn't the only one. I, as soon as the cops ran past and, and the crowd kind of like moved out, there was like four or five of us just like laying there in the street going, what just happened? Did your friends see that happen to you? No, they didn't. Cause they were further behind. And I, I think what happened was I believe that they decided that when they saw the group, when they saw the police and they saw the crowd kind of disperse like that, they just moved on and went to Pat O'Brien's or whatever. So I completely lost them. I could not find them because now I, I get up and I, you know, walking around trying to find them. I can't find them. I go to Pat O'Brien's. I'm looking for them there. I, I They actually let me in. I couldn't believe it because there's a line of about 100 people. Pat O'Brien's let me in to go look and see if I could find them. Because I, th- I get, you know, I was probably like, like teary eyed or something, you know, I just, I look like I actually really did lose. <laughs> so, so I couldn't find him anywhere. So I ended up taking a taxi back to our apartment and I got inside and a couple hours later they came back and I was like, look, look what happened to me. Look what happened to me. And they couldn't believe that that had happened, that they didn't, that they were walking right behind me and that they didn't see all that that happened, but they were, well, maybe you shouldn't walk ahead of us next time and stuff like that. And they kind of put a little bit of blame on me, which I, for losing them, I do get that. I don't believe that I should have been knocked out over the head, but I mean, yeah. I guess it's weird. And in Mardi Gras, it's like, no matter what happens, nobody's really all that surprised. Right. And I think basically from what I heard, the police are just trying to keep like, that's why you can basically run around naked during Mardi Gras and no one's going to do anything. They just want to prevent violence. And you know, the police were on that. They did see that happening. They, they saw what they were doing to people walking across the street. You know, yeah. So that was uh, the second thing that happened. And there was even a third thing? There was a third thing that happened. Uh, somebody had hit my, hit my car. So I had I had no transportation for a while. So I basically used the trolley all the time from that point on. For, well, not that point on, but probably for about five weeks or something um, until I could find a new one. So I was taking the trolley home one night. So it was dark out this time. And I was just sitting on the trolley and my stop came up and I got off and this other guy got off too. And he's kind of a scrawny person, whatever. I didn't have any fear, but I was, by now I was pretty aware of my surroundings when I was in New Orleans. I was pretty aware, just, you know, I just. So you were, you look, you kind of saw this guy and thought, okay, if something happens, I can take him, right? Yeah, kind of. I just, I didn't really think, I didn't think much of him, I guess. That's because he just got off the trolley and I went my way. Now, it's kind of hard to describe, but my, our apartment, it was like a, a small apartment building. It had like a corridor that was open, open air corridor that you would go through to get to your apartment. But if you were driving, you would drive around the parking lot. It had a different place where you drove in and then you parked your cars. And that had had maybe about 10 cars that parked there. So we had our own private parking spot. But I walked. I didn't. I wasn't driving. So I just walked from the trolley straight through to my apartment. And I didn't really pay attention to where he was going. So I go to put my key in the door and I heard a noise. And I turn around and this guy was behind a car. He is behind a car. And when he saw me or noticed I was looking around, he ducked down. So he's hiding in the parking lot watching me. And this to me, actually, this was so scary. This, have you ever seen like a movie when the person can't get their key in the door? Like like every slasher movie ever made. <laughs> yes, 
I couldn't get my, I could, I was shaking so bad. I was trying to get the key in the door, but my hand was shaking so much because I knew he was maybe 20 feet away from me and he was watching me. So I, I finally, I, I got the thing in, I opened the door, I slammed the door, I put on the deadbolt. And I remember I walked to the bathroom and in the mirror, my face was ghost white. It was just solid white. Like I was so afraid. It was so scary. And then I realized my cousin hasn't returned from class yet. Oh my gosh. Now I'm really scared because now we have a guy hiding in the parking lot. She hasn't returned and we don't have cell phones back then to warn people. And, you know, I'm not going to go outside and wait for her, obviously. Um, so maybe, maybe 20 minutes, a half hour later, she comes walking in, opens up, you know, with the key with her door comes in. And I remember just, I, I slammed the door behind her and I said, do you know what time it is? Do you, do you know what's happening out there? And I was just, she's looking at me like, what's going on? And then I had to explain to her, I, I felt like, I mean, I just couldn't, I mean, it was kind of a, in a way, sort of a comic relief, even though it wasn't really, it wasn't funny, but the way that I treated her that night was just like a mom. And of course, by that time, that guy was long gone. Probably was, He yeah. didn't know somebody yeah. else was going to come home. Right. So. But I, of course I, you know, I was just paranoid for her and, you know, I really just, I really cared for her. We're, we're still like super close. So that was the third thing. And, um, basically I, I kind of say like three strikes and you're out. That was pretty much what I said to myself. I was, I just, I said, you know, maybe it's time for me to venture back. <laughs> and how long overall had you been? 11 months. Okay. That's you, you gave it the old college try. I think I gave it the old college try. I was gone for, yeah, for 11 months. And, um, I ventured back home and I, I mean, I had moved a couple times since I ventured back home and, you know, I moved to, to Tucson for a while and my husband and I, after we got married, lived in New Orleans. But for the most part, I spent the last 20, well, I spent 26 of the 30 years I've been married living in, in Henniker, the small little town that I wanted to run away from and embraced it and raised our children there and loved it. You know, they, sometimes I think you don't realize what you have until it's gone. That's very true. Yeah. We raised our kids in Maine, even though we're in Florida now. And uh, there's something about that New England type atmosphere. That's just, uh, that's just nice. I agree. It's just a nice, it was a nice place to raise our children. Um, they grew up skiing at the local ski area right down the road or right up the road and um, had great schools. They did really, really well. And it, this is a town also. So we have a child with autism and we could not have lived in a better town than this. Um, they have supported our son so much. We could not have done it without without their support. So many friends, so many people who are just always looking out after him and wanting to help out and doing things for him. And so they, they were great. Do you, do you miss anything about the excitement of big city life? Not really. I, we ended up leaving Henniker for our son. We moved into Concord, which is just 20 minutes away, just so that our son can, um, you know, walk around everywhere because he doesn't drive. So he can walk to, he can walk to the banks. He can walk to the stores. He can walk to restaurants. So we did that. So we're in a little bit bigger of a place, but no, I, you know, I work for a news station. So I kind of get, kind of get all the excitement and, you know, in the eight hours that I'm at work that I need. Yeah. You kind of hear all the excitement and experience it vicariously rather than, rather than out your front door. I think vicariously is definitely the key word there. I think at a distance. Yes, definitely. So I, yeah, I don't really, I don't really miss it. The people were cool. I mean, it was a great city. The architecture is stunning. You know, I went there, I went back there for our honeymoon. My husband and I went back there for our honeymoon for like four days and we were going to bring our son and daughter a couple of years ago, but that got canceled out. But we plan on bringing them someday. So I think it's a beautiful city. I don't think it was really the city. I think it was just 
bad, really bad luck and just being in the wrong place, I guess. Yeah, of course. Yeah. A lot of people live there and love it. Of course, yeah. they, they hadn't experienced what you had either on your first day there. Yeah. <laughs> it is pretty cool that I did stick it out for 11 months. You got to admit, now that I think about it, I could have just gone crying home. <laughs> well, that's a great story. I am. I'm glad you made it through anyway. And it's great to hear that you're enjoying life back in New Hampshire. I do. Thank you very much. And um, thanks for letting me be on the podcast to tell this story. Hey, just a couple more things before we head out the door. Would you like to get emails from me? I send one out every time I release a new episode, but there's other stuff in there that you might find interesting. I've recently come across a couple of absolutely amazing documentaries, and I talked about those in my email. And if I post an image on Instagram and it goes crazy, I might include that image in the email. Just cool, crazy stuff that strikes me as interesting. That email is where I'll tell you about it. You can sign up at whatwasthatlike.com slash email. And check this out. I recently discovered a podcast that I'm pretty sure you're going to love. I don't know how I hadn't heard of it before. It's called The Trail Went Cold. It's in the true crime category, and the host, Robin Warder, lays out the details of unsolved cases. So to play out today's episode, I'll have Robin tell you about it. And I'll see you right back here in two weeks. Hello, everyone. This is Robin Warder, host of the true crime podcast, The Trail Went Cold. If you grew up watching the classic television show Unsolved Mysteries, then this is the podcast for you. Each week, I profile a new unsolved murder or missing persons case and share all the baffling details. Afterward, I provide my own personal analysis and theories about what might have happened. This is a show for true crime buffs who are fascinated by cold cases and love to discuss them and pick them apart in an attempt to figure out the truth. So be sure to check out our podcast to learn about some truly bizarre unsolved mysteries where the trail went cold. (laughs) 